The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile. I'm Justin Briley and this is the programme every Saturday afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio as part of Faith Explored that brings interesting people into your ears. And today I'm going to be talking to astrophysicist Luke Barnes before I get into talking to him about his life, his faith and his amazing work on cosmology. Uh, Let me remind you that The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor and if you'd like a free sample copy of the mag we'd be happy to send you one in the post. Simply ask for one at our website that's premierchristianity.com slash free sample and in that mag you'll find all kinds of other interesting interviews with uh, various different people. But uh, this is The Profile and Luke Barnes welcome along to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you because uh, you've come a long way to be here not specifically for this I'll admit but uh, you're, you're over in the UK from Australia. Uh, I assume you grew up there, did you? I did. I was born in a small country town in uh, Australia, and I've lived there for most of my life, yeah. So you're an Aussie, um, Mm -hmm. and in a sense, we're going to be talking about your academic career as a cosmologist, a physicist, and so on. But uh, this small country town in Australia, was that a place where your parents were Christians? Did you have any kind of Christian upbringing? So yeah, my Christian, my <laughs> my parents were Christians. So mm-hmm. th- my dad was the pastor of a small church in a small country town. So I I grew up there in a in a large family, and um, that was that was. And they'd been missionaries in Vanuatu before coming back to Australia to 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 raise a family. So okay, so yeah. so you were a a mish kid in that sense. Not or? quite. I just missed the mish phase okay. of the mish kid. I was just a pastor's kid. Okay, uh, and was there any sort of scientific? background in the family up to you up to you coming into the scene my my grandfather was a chemist he was a, a industrial chemist first and then a, a lecturer in chemistry and so he was quite proud when finally one of the grandkids went into science so that was <laughs> it was quite he was very eager to give me this massive book of uh all sorts of weird data and integrals and, and stuff that he could finally pass it on to someone because <laughs> his own kids didn't go into science very good so um, when it comes to your own Christian faith, was that something that sort of naturally kind of got passed on in a sense from your family and, and you accepted for yourself or was there ever a kind of period of, of doubt or rejection of Christian faith? There was no great sort of prodigal son phase. phase. I didn't sort of take off and uh, sow my wild oats or anything like that. So, uh, But uh, there was a, a phase, especially high school. It was a Christian high school, but it was a very different mix of all sorts mm. of Christians there. Mm. So that, that led to a lot of questioning about the stuff that was part of my tradition versus the stuff that was Christianity proper. Okay. And starting a career in science when, mm. you know, uh, was, you know, there's interesting questions kind of raised there about science and Christianity. Right. I mean, did you kind of run into any sort of conflict, as it were, between the science you began to be interested in and, and the faith you also grew up in? I actually ran into the conflict in philosophy first, which was kind of funny. I got given a book actually by my dad uh, just called Ideas Have Consequences, just about the history of philosophy, um, written from a Christian perspective, but covering all the other sort of philosophies that are out there, mm. human and, and all those sorts of things. So that's where it came up first. And then the sort of general impression from certain circles that there's this conflict between science and religion generally and Christianity in particular was something that sort of almost drove me further to reading more about science. Right. Did you feel like you eventually kind of came to some resolution on the issues that that threw up for you? I did. It took a bit of thought. Uh, So I was raised as a young earth creationist, but I'm not a young earth creationist now. Uh, So that was something to think through and and think about. But there was no great enormous crisis there. It seemed Mm. like the, the biggest thing I had to deal with was the fact that there may be a book of the Bible which I didn't fully understand, but that's... Not unusual. I still right. don't know what Revelation is about. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting, though, that, that you were obviously raised in a presumably a church setting where young earth creationism was, was taught and so on. Mm. Um, do you, f- I mean, how do you feel about that in retrospect? Do you feel like, um, you know, that just was the way it was? Or, or do, you, do you have any strong feelings about the fact that that kind of theology exists? presumably mm. very different to, to where you are now in terms of your views on the, the age of the Earth mm. and the universe and everything, of, obviously, from your physics background. So it might be a funny thing to say, but it was kind of an open... 
It wasn't very. It wasn't dogmatic. That sounds okay. like a funny thing to say. Yeah. But there were there was a local science teacher who went to our church mm. who was quite vocally not a young earth creationist, right. and right. that was just an open conversation that was I had. It so, wasn't as though it was being preached every Sunday from the pulpit. Not every like Sunday. That. It was definitely it was definitely being preached. I don't okay. want to say it was. It was totally <laughs> but, but there was still there was a you know a, a very much a, yeah. a thought that this is something that this is the way we understand it. Other people right. understand it differently. I mean, generally in Australia, is that a kind of a strong kind of scientific outlook the young earth creations view among christians or uh has it changed much uh, over the years i'd be very interested to see how much has changed over the years my impression is it's slightly descending in, mm. in importance but uh it depends on the don- denomination so I, I currently go to a sydney anglican church and the sydney mm. anglicans are sort of famously it's a byword for conservative anglicans but right. they're not young earth creationists right. at all but uh, the, some of the smaller, you know, Presbyterians and the Baptists, okay. it has more of a hold there. But I still don't think it's dominant okay. at all. Interesting. I mean, obviously, ha- having worked through these issues for yourself, um, would you say that you kind of it, it, it? You always had though a kind of ultimate belief in Jesus as God's Son, His crucifixion, resurrection, and that kind of stuff. Was that always just 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 always there and, and something you were? you affirmed for yourself yeah so that that belief was always there but again as you start to branch out and think through these things i found a you know book when i was 17 called the ways of an atheist and read that and you know it it wasn't particularly the best (laughs) one in that genre but wanted to get out and test those ideas so so tried to read both sides as much as i could um and you know after all that i'm still a christian but there's still more reading to be done sure and what about your scientific colleagues and i will come to the actual progress of your scientific career hmm. but did you generally find they were ambivalent about faith issues did you generally find there were more atheists among them or did you find plenty of fellow christians i th- i think they're possibly more atheists than not i i, I should probably try and do a, a survey <laughs> but it'd be uh, anecdotal anyway uh when i was doing my undergrad though i knew there were certainly a, a, a reasonable portion of the class who at one o'clock, would go off to the evangelical unions you know, right. lunchtime talks. Yeah. So there was a sizable, you know, uh, thing there, and mm. and there are some sort of very large, very sort of eminent names in Australian astronomy. Uh, Ken Freeman, who uh, you know you you grow up learning about, he was one of the sort of you know pioneers of dark matter theory mm. and all that sort of stuff. And he's a, he's a Christian and, right. and talks about these things. I, so Do, there's 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 a mix. I, I mean, I don't tend to find in in cosmology and physics that you get as strident atheism as you might find in biology. So typically, you know, Richard Dawkins and others (laughs) tend to be quite sort of vocal. Now, obviously, you do have your your Lawrence Krauss's and Mm. others who who are also pretty vocal as well. But I I don't know, in your kind of experience in Australia, did people really kind of, you know, see religion as as an evil force and anti-scientific and everything? Or was it, were people just atheists because they'd never really considered Christianity in that sense? So I th- I think a lot of it, especially amongst people of my generation and younger, there's there's not the feeling. There's more of a feeling that Christianity is is the past. It's just been tried, and right. we're beyond that now. Uh, I think there's a general thought that uh, probably if they thought about it, it'd be something like you know this is something we used to believe, but we've mm-hmm. sort of grown up from that mm-hmm. now. Science, in some vague way that's never fully specified, has shown all of that stuff to be right. to be irrelevant. I think that's as much as most people yeah. have thought about it. And what about you? Did did you grow up feeling that science could be appointed towards God rather than away from God? It was a bit of a mix because of that influence from young earth creationism. But then there were people who weren't young earth creationists. There was the thought that, yes, science science properly done was simply the study of God's universe. Hmm. And that's all there is to it. I mean, you you see a painting and you notice the patterns in the painting. And that's that's basically hmm. what science is doing. But at the same time, there's that undercurrent of, but some of these theories are, are trying to replace God, and so we have to to object to them. And then, you know, but there's evidence for them, and so there's a lot to be thought through on that mm. kind mm. of level. But generally, it's not anti-science as such. It uh, the, the the thought that we can understand the real world mm. by looking at it very carefully is is not mm. something that anyone sure. objected to. Yeah. So, how did you kind of particularly get passionate about? astronomy and astrophysics and so on so i was i was actually more of a dinosaur nerd growing up which is weird <laughs> and even even to this day like if, if i later on head over to the 
the Natural Science Museum. I'm going straight for the for the dinosaurs, the, oh, the yeah. astronomy section. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was basically I, I was good at maths and you, you enjoy things that you're good at. Mm. And then in later parts of high school did physics and that was enjoyable because you could apply maths to the real world, you know in a remarkably precise way. Mm. And so it was always the theoretical physics, the equations side of things, Einstein and all those wonderful ideas. So that was my uh, draw into physics and then mm. some particularly wonderful physics is cosmology and, mm. and astrophysics. And, and so that's, I, I came in that way. There are other astronomers who came in via the, you know, I had a telescope when I was five years old and mm. I have totally memorised yeah. the night sky. Right. That's not my that's not <laughs> story. Your... I still disappoint people by not knowing the constellations. And you don't even own a really powerful telescope? or No. <laughs> I know some local, there are some wonderful, I'm sure they're here as well, amateur astronomy societies in Sydney. I know some of those guys. And I, was, I went along to one of their events once and the, the president said, oh, oh, yeah, here you can get your scope out of the car. And I went, I haven't got it. <laughs> Literally don't own one. I, had to, I went camping a few uh, months ago and I had to borrow one from these guys <laughs> just to show my mates. I mean, I guess in that sense, the, the kind of astrophysics you're involved in is very much the stuff you work out on a computer, on a paper or whatever, it, not the kind of stuff you tend to need to get your telescope out to kind of tell you about the universe. Oh, sense. yeah, yeah. No one lets me anywhere near the telescope. <laughs> um, I am involved in a few observational... I mean, a lot of science these days is done in large groups. Of course, Just because, yeah. you know, big telescopes, there's a lot of people who want to use them, so you get mm. together in a group and do a big mm. project. I am involved in a few of those, but as the, the theorist, that the, the, the computer side mm. of things, analysing mm. and, and modelling the data rather than collecting yeah. and, and, and reducing it. Do you think that cosmology... Uh, and astrophysics, that the results of that, what we see about the universe, can provide evidence for the existence of a creator of the universe? I think it depends the way you look at it. I certainly think there are things in cosmology, things in physics, that make a lot of sense to me from within my Christian worldview. That if I stand within that worldview and look at various things about the universe, they make an awful lot of sense to me. In a way that if I can then sort of imagine myself going and standing inside the, the naturalist worldview, the atheist worldview, and saying, all right, let's stand in here and look at the same things, I think that would make me profoundly uncomfortable. There are certain mm. things about our world which I would not expect on that worldview. Okay. So it's, it's very consistent in that sense with, with a Christian worldview, and you find it less consistent with, uh, say, a naturalistic worldview where, where it's really just blind forces and no no ultimate governing kind of thing behind them in a sense or, or transcendent sort of creation yeah so there's look, well for example there's 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 a lot of you know the fact that there is a universe at all mm. the fact that it obeys laws the fact that those laws are discoverable by human beings the fact that when we uh put those laws into a mathematical form what we need for that is kind of the most beautiful elegant mathematics we've ever discovered uh, things like that, the fact that only a very small fraction of the the universes we can sort of you know, imagine, in, investigate in theoretically would actually allow anything like life. All of those are the sorts of things that you you kind of have to just accept if you're a naturalist. You just have to say that's that's the way the universe is. We're not going to get a deeper explanation because the ultimate laws of nature are just the ultimate principles of reality. That's it. Uh, whereas those are, those are the kinds of things you can at least understand from within a Christian worldview. Mm, absolutely. And this is obviously where a lot of your work has touched on, you know, how, how whether there is evidence from these aspects of the, the universe that you've looked into a lot mm -hmm. as to whether they, they do point beyond themselves in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about your book uh, in the second half of today's program, especially, mm -hmm. and I should have mentioned that from the outset, that uh, you are um, not only a astrophysicist researching at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy, but you've also recently co-authored a book called A Fortunate Universe, mm -hmm. Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. That was with a, a, a friend of yours, a colleague, uh, agnostic physicist Geraint Lewis. Uh, am I pronouncing it pr yes, correctly? Yes, he's, he's Welsh. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, we'll come on to talk about that because the whole area of fine-tuning is, is somewhat mm -hmm. complex but fascinating area. Mm -hmm. But one area that I think has equally gone hand-in-hand hand with that in the last several decades is the advent of Big Bang cosmology, mm -hmm. as it's called. This idea that the universe hasn't, in a sense, always been around in the way that we conceive it today, that it had almost what 
many people see as a starting point in time and space 14 mm. billion or so years ago. Um, a pretty hard idea to get your head around. But do you, do you want to just explain what the, the idea is behind Big Bang cosmology for people who are a bit unfamiliar with it and and why it's become the major sort of view of the, 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 the origins of the universe today? Sure, in 25 words or less. <laughs> uh, wonderful. So it's important to understand that there's sort of two things that are called the Big Bang. One mm. of them is this idea of, an, of a beginning of the universe, a beginning point, called the mm. you know, bang and then there goes the universe. Uh, when, a, when a cosmologist talks about the Big Bang theory, what they really mean is just uh, we can explain a lot about our universe if in the past the universe was hotter and denser. And that's basically, you know, hand-wavingly all there is to it. Mm. So it, basically in the past, things were hotter and denser. And so there's evidence of that in, in a few things. So we see uh, galaxies that are moving away from us in every galaxy is moving away from us. Mm. Not only that, but... Uh, something a galaxy twice as far away is moving twice as fast and three mm. times away three times as fast and that looks like the imprint of a, a universal expansion which would look the same everywhere right okay so that's that's one bit of evidence another important bit is uh, that there is this leftover radiation f- mm. from the very early universe the cosmic uh, microwave background that's radiation yeah so the the important thing about that radiation is it looks like exactly like the radiation you get when matter and and light are perfectly coupled in at the same temperature. Mm. When you get that, you get exactly this shape, or this spectrum, it's called. Okay. But the important thing is the matter in the universe today isn't perfectly coupled with radiation. Mm. And so that radiation is, is nicely explained, almost basically proof of, a time in the universe when they were perfectly coupled. Mm. And that happens when things are hot and dense. Yeah. So if in the past the universe was hot and dense, that would explain that radiation very nicely. And when <clears> you say hot and dense, you're also, in a sense, I, as I understand, talking about very small in the sense of if you can talk about smallness when mm. you're talking about everything that sort of exists. Yeah. Um, but, but effectively, at its very early stages, the universe was you know, the size of a pea, effectively. I mean, is that, is that one way of being able to talk about it? Sort of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, again, this is a long topic. Um, it's hard to assign a size to the universe unless it actually has a finite size. So the universe can be infinitely large and still be hotter and denser in the past. Yes. It's just that everything, you know, you know, every, everything's moving away from everything else, even though the universe is infinite. But it, suppose the universe were actually finite, like the surface of a sphere, but a three-dimensional mm. version mm. of that, which is possible. It, there would be a time in the universe if you just there there is just something called the the size of the universe. Mm. There is something specifically. There's a volume of the universe. Mm. Geraint mm. likes to say there's a there's a there's a number of oranges you can fit into the universe. <laughs> there's some number like that. Yes. And and as you go back in time, it gets smaller. Right. Right. So uh, in that sense, uh, and if the universe is infinite, it expands the same way. But there's a, still an infinite number of oranges. The problem. Okay. <laughs> but if it's finite, then at, there is some time in the past when it has the volume of a pea or, or smaller. Right. Yes. Um, the problem is we we have no idea whether the universe is finite or infinitely large. Um, so it, we don't know whether, we don't... whether those cases. But we can still talk about the universe being hotter and denser in the past. Hotter and denser. And and do you go down the road of talking about a a beginning point in that sense to the universe so there's a long back and forth for the whole <laughs> like since so the, the origins of this this idea about the universe are in the 1920s there's a long back and forth mm. about what the beginning looks like so um it was thought <clears throat> so the the this you know so for example it in the standard you know, just take Einstein's theory of gravity and run the universe backwards. It goes back to a time when the universe had you know, zero relative size. Mm. Okay, so there's no way to extrapolate further back in time. That's an mm. absolute boundary to space mm. time. Okay, and then uh, possibly someone says that's a bounce. Maybe it goes to zero, but then before that, you know, it was just bouncing. And then in the 30s, it's pointed out no, the bounces would get smaller back in time, and so there must still be an absolute beginning. And someone says, oh, okay, but that's, it's only if the universe is perfectly smooth, it'll go back perfectly to a point. If you put any sort of roughness in it or rotation or anything, it'll go back and just sort of miss that beginning point. But then Hawking and, and Penrose in the 60s proved, no, nope, that won't save it. It'll still go back to the beginning if Einstein is right. 
And then back and forth we so go. So there's been a lot of back and forth about whether yeah. or not it would go back to a what's sometimes I think called a singularity, yes. this, this idea of a, a beginning point, yeah. a boundary to time and space. Um, I mean, generally, is that where the the consensus is today that that there was a there is a a, a singularity, a, a boundary to time and space in the history of the universe? The, the consensus is that unless at some point Einstein's theory breaks down, ceases to correctly explain how space and time work, mm. yes, it will go back to a singularity. There are even more powerful theorems that say actually you don't quite need all of Einstein's theory; you just mm. need uh, a th- something about space and time. So. One of the interesting things about all of that back and forth is no one ever tried to put a beginning in their model. Mm. It was people just tried to model the universe as a whole and found that that model had a beginning in it and then tried to get rid of that beginning somehow. And that back and forth has sometimes worked and sometimes failed. So so uh, I think the consensus today is we have good reasons to think that there's... Uh, because Einstein's theory doesn't incorporate quantum ideas, these other, mm. this other side of physics, mm. that there's a big question mark at the beginning... But sort of all the clues are pointing in the same way, even though we can't quite get back to the beginning point. I mean, for an untutored lay person like myself, hmm. the, uh, and as a Christian, that we may be sort of, you know, quite open to, to thinking, OK, beginning of the universe feels like, yeah, yeah. you know, something like let there be light, you know, the, a creation event of right. some kind it could be evidence for a creator of the universe. What, what's your thinking on that? Is that a valid kind of move to make when we're looking at these kind of scientific data about the universe? I think it's very interesting along those lines. Again, it's something that if you're inside a Christian worldview, then that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm. And and even if you, it's not totally provable scientifically, that it's still something you can make a lot of sense out of if there was this absolute beginning of the universe. I think if you're a naturalist, it would make you very uncomfortable that there was an absolute were, were, were naturalists, as it was, you know, being documented and, and researched, uncomfortable with the implications potentially. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a history in the 20th, in the mid-20th century especially, of the Big Bang Theory being vehemently objected to because it looked an awful lot like a, you know, like a creator's put-up job. Right. So um, it's basically the, the inspiration behind an alternative theory of cosmology in the middle of the 20th century called steady-state theory. Mm. But that's... So the... the, the the makers of that model were quite explicit about they they didn't want any of this, you know, cosmic beginning, cosmic mm. creation event happening. So they they made that model. That model mm. actually then failed. Right. So there are more attempts to go over it. So there's definitely objections along those lines. It, it sort of s- smelled suspicious to to an awful lot of naturalists. Right. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because <clears throat> to some extent, then is that evidence that people's worldview, if you are kind of committed to a naturalistic view of the world that there is no there are, is no supernatural dimension to mm. to life and so on that you're going to be looking for theories that match that essentially that that confirm that you're not going to be open to a theory that could have an implication of something beyond the physical universe possibly Although the other thing you could say is if you're a naturalist, the ultimate laws of nature just are the ultimate principles of reality. Mm. And so what you, you could just bite the bullet and say, look, the universe exists as a brute fact is what I believe anyway. It just is. Mm. So it might as well be just is and only a finite amount of time old. Mm. You could take that argument. I think some naturalists do. You know, there's no reason for the universe anyway. So it even if it was infinitely old, it still just exists. It's just a brute fact, yeah. the universe. I guess for me, though, my immediate question is, but why assume that? Why, why assume that the universe just appeared, either appeared or, or has always been here? I, I mean, is those the kinds of questions that you, that you ask your colleagues who are naturalists in this area? Do you, do you get to those kind of metaphysical kind of theological debates by, at some point down the road? Sometimes, at some point in the pub, usually. <laughs> uh, so I think... Yeah, one of the important implications of this is that naturalists would say even if the entire universe simply began to exist at some point, they would still say it's just a brute fact. So I think that, that there's kind of a... This is called the Kalam cosmological argument, as I'm mm. sure you know. There's kind of a meta-argument above this that even if... Whether the universe has a beginning or not, if it did have one, as a naturalist, you'd have to say, well, that's just a brute, brute fact. Reality just mm. is somewhere and that's the way it is. At which point... You know, why are you doing that at all, right? Okay, f- sure, fight back against the, you know, try to find a way the universe could be infinitely old. Mm. But 
even if it wasn't infinitely old, you'd still have to say it's a brute fact. So if it was inf- if yeah. it was infinitely old, yeah. you'd still say it was a brute fact. You'd still have the problem of yeah. it just being just a, a, a just a kind of weird thing yeah. that, that, that anything exists at all. Yeah, the, the thought yeah. experiment should should lead you to be very sceptical of the idea that you should just accept the existence of everything that actually exists as just a brute fact, as just something that just is and there's no further yeah. explanation. Interesting stuff. I mean, what we're going to get onto in the next section of the program is actually the area that you've been most specifically involved in, which mm-hmm. is another aspect of the nature of the universe, which a lot of people have have said does provide some evidence, again, for the existence mm-hmm. of a creator. And that's the what's called the fine-tuning of the universe. We're going to get to that in the second segment mm-hmm. of today's profile. I'm Justin Briley. This is the show where we bring you a Christian from some walk of uh, life uh, with some kind of expertise. And today, uh, Luke Barnes joins me, astrophysicist researching at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy and author, along with Geraint Lewis of A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Fine-Tuned Cosmos. Uh, and we're, we're going to be drawing on Luke's uh, knowledge and wisdom in the area of cosmology and faith. Uh, in the second part of today's show. So thank you for being with me, Luke. And uh, if you're listening and you can join us again for the second part, do that. Uh, We'd love you to be with us. Uh, This is The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. We'll be back in a moment's time. Whatever happened to the promised revival? In the latest Premier Christianity magazine, New Frontiers leader Terry Virgo asks whether it's time to reignite revival hopes as he looks at moves of God, past, present and future. Plus, from Justin Welby to the HDB effect, we examine how evangelicals took over the Church of England. Find out why adoption turned Krish Kandaya's life and theology upside down and meet Christina Dean, pioneering fashion designer who scours rubbish tips to create ethical clothing. All that plus much more. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget, you can find The Profile as a podcast as well. Uh, If you search it up on iTunes or whatever podcast software you use, just look out for The Profile. Uh, Available at the Premier Christian Radio website as well, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. All kinds of people join myself and other presenters here on Premier Christian Radio to talk about their life and faith and journey. Uh, today, Luke Barnes joins me, Justin Briley, in studio. Uh, Luke is an astrophysicist researching at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy. He's a Christian and believes that there are significant elements of our growing knowledge of cosmology that could be used as evidence for uh, a creator. It's certainly consistent, he says, with his worldview as a Christian and less consistent in his view with atheism or naturalism. Well, uh, the profile brought to you, of course, in association with the magazine I edit, Premier Christianity magazine. If you want to find more interesting articles, features and interviews with people like Luke, then do go to our website, premierchristianity.com and add slash free sample and we'll um, fill in the form there. We'll send you the latest edition of the magazine absolutely free, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Uh, Luke, it's really great to be able to sit down and talk with you about this slightly mind-boggling stuff <laughs> when it comes to the, the nature of our universe. Um, the, we were talking in the last segment about this idea that there's a, a boundary to, to the sort of uh, essentially a kind of some, something akin to a beginning point mm-hmm. to the universe and whether that does or doesn't sort of provide evidence for a creator and that kind of thing. Really, though, the, the area you've been most involved in looking into is what's called the fine-tuning of the universe. And again, bearing in mind, uh, this is a non-technical audience listening to this. Mm. Do you want to give us, a, a, as you, much as you can in a nutshell, what the fine-tuning of the universe for life is all about and, and, and help us to understand it? So there are some basic building blocks of the universe, the stuff that we're all made out of, electrons and all that sort of stuff you hopefully learned about in high school. And there's also some global properties the universe as, whole, as a whole has like you know how much matter there is in it and how fast it's expanding and 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 various things like that and these are sort of the edge of physics as we know it we we, we don't know why the electron has the mass it how heavy the electron is we we, sorry, we know how heavy it is we don't know why it has that particular mass okay okay um and so as a part of being a theoretical physicist you say why does it have this particular property and to try and get a clue of that you say what if it had a different Property. What if the electron were a bit heavier or a bit lighter? 
there's there's forces that act in our universe that hold things together and push things apart. What if they had different strengths? Give us some examples of these. The force of gravity, for instance. Force of gravity is one. Another one is electromagnetism. So there are mm-hmm. positive and negative charges in our universe yeah. that attract and repel. There are forces that hold together your the nuclei of your atoms, the protons mm-hmm. and neutrons at the very center of atoms. Actually, there's only four. So I've, I've given you three of them. The, okay. other one, the last one is called the weak nuclear force, which okay. is involved in radioactivity. And then there are also other kind of ratios of things to other things that are quite sort of specific as well, as I understand it. Yeah, so what we're really interested in is boiling down to the very fundamental basic numbers mm. of the universe, because okay. hopefully if we get do our physics right, everything else will follow from that. Okay. So the very basic stuff are basically, there's a, there's a, a standard set of particles, fundamental particles, mm-hmm. you know, the electron. Um, protons and neutrons are made out of things called quarks, mm-hmm. if you need that for a pub quiz in future. <laughs> how, how heavy are they? Uh, there's a couple of other numbers from fundamental physics. There's things like you know the ratio of dark matter to ordinary matter in the mm-hmm. universe, something called the cosmological constant. All said and done, there's about 30 of these fundamental numbers that we just have to put into our okay. equations, and then out comes, hopefully, predictions about how the world works. Okay. And so, so these are the numbers. Right. What's unusual about these particular numbers? So when we do that thought experiment, and really we're doing it with equations and computers and all those sorts of things, but we ask, what if these numbers were different? We find something kind of interesting that no one was really expecting. This started sort of 40 years ago in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's found that actually a lot of the features of the universe we see around us would be dramatically different. And in particular, a lot of the ways in which our universe is complex... Would, would disappear mm. and we get a universe which was very, very simple. Mm. So, for example, our universe, the way that matter makes things collapse into galaxies and stars and planets and all of that, wonderfully, beautifully complicated mm. process that, that we attack with simulations on a computer. We can change the cosmic numbers to make none of that happen. You just get a very simple universe with... Just filled with single particles and all the whole thing. Just, just a expands. kind of like basically just energy dissipated throughout the universe. No, just, no kind of galaxies, planets, stars. Yeah, exactly, that just kind of a thing. bland hydrogen soup right. um, where not much else happens. A and very uninteresting sort of yeah. universe. Yeah. And so uh, on the other end of the scale, the smaller end of the scale, we can see sort of in outline, not in not in huge detail. We're still working on it. Physics is still happening, but the way that the fundamental things. So the quarks make protons and neutrons, which make atoms, which make molecules, which make you know biomolecules and DNA, cells, people, all that sort of all that interesting stuff. If we change the basic properties of the the, the beginning of that story, mm. the mass of the fundamental pieces, we can we can sort of kill off most of this. So you can you can have a universe where you have quarks and electrons, you can make those into protons and neutrons, and then that's the end of the story. You don't stick anything together, you don't make atoms. and, you, and, right. and So all the rest of that story just doesn't happen. You just have protons so, and neutrons. So, so changing the numbers of these fundamental forces and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, ratios and so on um, means that whenever you do this, it, it, more often than not, it turns the universe into this sort of uninteresting universe where you, you don't get matter coalescing and, and galaxies forming and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I suppose the question is, though, Okay, how just how you know precise are these numbers then? I mean, how how much wiggle room is there when it comes to you know how much uh, tolerance there is, mm. as, it, as it were, in these forces as to as to how much you could change them and still still have a universe something like ours? Right. So for some of them, actually, it's not actually that fine tuned. That's something not a lot of people tell you. Of the thirty, there's there's about ten which are really on a knife. On a razor's edge. Okay. So of those, I, th- I think some of them are particularly very fine-tuned. So the masses of the fundamental particles. Mm. The the theory we have could, could describe the way they would behave for a mass anywhere from zero up to some rather you know, ludicrously large number on that sort of scale, where things are very small anyway. And to get anything interesting like just nuclei, like just, just making an atom... The, the, the middle of an atom, mm. the range that you need is extraordinarily small, so right. one part in a billion, a billion, billion on that sort of scale. Right. Um, and then from the top down, there's ways of making the universe expand way too fast, and so mm-hmm. none, of the, none of the complexity happens. And those are sort of the most impressive numbers. You, you're getting one part in a number with about 120 digits, 121 wow. digits. Wow. So, so what you're saying there is that the, the the value that certain certain of these forces take 
um, is so incredibly precise that if it was changed by one part in 10 to the whatever it is, 60 zeros or whatever it might yeah. be, um, you would not get a universe that, that what? That can have sort of chemistry, that can have, you know, the stuff that we need to even think about life Im- emerging at some point, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, if you change them by this extraordinarily small amount, mathematically everything would be fine. We can still do all the theoretical physics we want sure. to do. But these universes are really simple. Instead of the complexity of this universe mm. where, you know, in all sorts of wonderful things like Earth happens, mm. we would just have a really simple universe, which physically really easy to predict what would happen. But because of that, only very simple things happen. A hydrogen soup. So that's why people talk about our universe being finely tuned for life. Mm-hmm. Because were these physical forces and so on, the, these, these ba- fundamental numbers that, that govern the laws of nature and so on, ever so slightly different, literally on this razor's edge, um, we would not exist. We would not be here to be having this conversation because there wouldn't be Earth, planets, solar systems, galaxies, or any of that great stuff to, to even start to think about you know, life developing in some curious way on, on one of these rocky parts of the, the universe. Yeah, that seems a pretty safe conclusion. Yeah. You just end up with a universe where every proton is... A, it wouldn't stick to anything else if it came near it, so you wouldn't get nuclei. And B, nothing ever comes near it. It just ends up totally isolated in empty space. So a lot of people say this is a curious phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Why is our universe so very finely tuned to allow life? It seems like we're. it's incredibly unlikely Mm -hmm. at some level that the numbers would be just right as it happens for us. Mm-hmm. So what are the different options out there in terms of an explanation for why, uh, the, you know, that we do live in a universe that, that, was, that has the numbers just right to enable us to exist today? I mean, one of them presumably is, is, a cre- is some kind of creative force out there. It's something that intended for the numbers to, to, to take the value that they do sure. so that life could exist. What, are there other options on the table? Absolutely, especially because this discovery sort of came out of the physics literature sort of by accident. Mm. It's a standard thing you do with your theory Mm. to say, all right, I have this number in there. I don't know why it is what it is. What if it were different? And then out of that came fine-tuning. And so a very early response was maybe something unlikely happened because there were lots of different attempts at it. This is called the multiverse. It's basically Mm. the same explanation as uh, why does anyone win the lottery? Well, because lots of people buy different tickets. Mm. So as long as lots of people buy tickets and they're different tickets, then there's a, a better chance than you would otherwise have had of the winning ticket turning up somewhere. And so the idea is, okay, there's lots of other universes out there with different values of these numbers. And the vast majority of them, these very uninteresting ones where nothing really happens. Exactly. Uh, but if there's enough of them and they're varied enough, to then eventually... You get the winning lottery ticket. Yeah, exactly. The winning lottery ticket turns up. And only, this is the important part, only in those universes is there anyone scratching their heads going, why am I in a universe which permits the existence right. of life? No, sure. there's no one going, why am I in a universe with just hydrogen, right? Right. I mean, before we get to the multiverse sort of hypothesis, mm-hmm. I mean, is chance a kind of an option on the table as far as you're concerned? Like... Yeah, that's that was what the numbers are. We're we're here, a bit of a fluke, I know, right. but we're here by chance. Not by anyone who really takes the the sort of probabilities we're talking about seriously. I think the more likely, the more likely one is you, you'll take chance as long as there's something else which reduces those chances very significantly. So one of the other viewpoints would be uh, maybe there is some sort of necessity. In the universe, maybe there's some reason why these numbers had to be what they are. We just don't know what it is. Right. So, Something for example, we haven't discovered yet. Yeah. Some un- even more underlying law that that makes sense of why these numbers took the number. If yeah, if if we had one of these numbers, so you know, it was it was three point one four five nine, and we go, oh man, if it was slightly different, then the universe would be tragic in this way or that way, yeah. and then we discover from some greater theory that yeah. actually, oh, that number's pi, then the, the thought, oh, no, what if pi were different, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay. So, Would so it not be maybe still... there's some higher yeah. theory which okay. just tells us why these numbers have to have what the, the value they do. I mean, when I hear that, 
which I suppose is, is a, an option on the table. We mm. might come to some deeper underlying law about that, that kind of explains <clears throat> the fine tuning. Would it not still be somewhat remarkable that it still happens to produce us? You know, that, mm. that, that it's still producing a set of numbers which produce us. Absolutely. So I should say in the book, we, Geraint and I, Geraint's an atheist, we spent we, the first seven chapters we wrote together. Mm. Right. So that's all the stuff that a Christian and an atheist can agree on about the mm. scientific literature. Mm. And then chapter eight, we try and work through these different viewpoints. Yeah. And um, what, we both actually reject this idea that it maybe it's necessity. Right. So and, and the reason is exactly the point you raise. The, the whole point was to look at other ways the universe could have been. And if you get a higher order theory that, that tells you some, some, some bigger idea than, than what we've got, which tells you why these numbers have to be what they mm. are, all you do is you take all the questions you had. Why is the universe <laughs> this way? And you just throw it up high, at higher yeah, level. Yeah, it, it's kind of you just, you, yeah, you've just kicked the ball up a bit higher. Yeah, yeah to... and there would have, you know, there's some greater beautiful mathematical symmetry mm. which says all of this. But it would be, still be pretty weird if there was some great abstract mathematical idea which said it must be the case that DNA is possible right. and, and the universe can create yeah. all of that complexity. Because so far as we know, all, all these other yeah. dead universes are perfectly mathematically fine. From those who are not so trained in this area, the most common response I get when I mention this whole mm. idea of fine-tuning is, is, a, is a, an analogy that um, Douglas Adams, I think, was mm. famous for, for saying, well, you saying that, we're, that the universe is fine-tuned for us is a bit like a puddle saying, aren't I, uh, isn't this um, hole that I'm in finely tuned for me? But of course, the puddle just shakes the shape of the ho- whatever hole it happened, the rain happens right. to fall in. And so likewise, whatever the laws happen to be in the universe, um, life would adapt to, to whatever it found. You know, the, the, yeah, you know yeah. we, we happen to be the result of this set of laws. Something else would be a result of a different set of laws. I think that's the, yeah. the idea behind it, that, that it's a somehow very egocentric view to think yeah. this, this had us in mind. Um, it could have been something else if, if with a different set of constraints and laws. Right, but think about the puddle example. The, the puddle, if, they, if it really knew what was going on, would say, all right, given that, that the ground underneath me is solid, given that I am a liquid, and given that gravity is pushing down, it must be the case that my shape is the same as the puddle that I'm in. So if that is supposed to be an analogy for fine-tuning, there has to be some sentence that goes like this. Given something... <laughs> It must be the case that a universe would produce life. And if you've got any idea what that something is, please let us know because no <laughs> one has the slightest clue. That's the problem with the analogy. There, there really is a something, right? Uh, it, it, it's basically because the puddle can take, it takes whatever shape of the mm. thing it's in. There's, there's no such thing as the shape of a puddle, no. right? But a, a priori, before, yeah. you, before you put it yeah. in something. Yeah. But there is such a thing as, you know, life yes. we have some idea about yeah. what it would be to be alive rather than dead yeah. so it's not this infinitely flexible yeah. thing so if you're looking we can ask about a universe is there life in it in a way that mm. we can't say about a puddle yeah. is it puddle shaped because yeah. there's no such thing as puddle shaped right let's talk about the multiverse then because right. that's obviously one of the most popular um if you like naturalistic explanations of the the fact of our finely tuned universe and it sounds like Geraint and you agree in a sense on the fact of fine tuning mm-hmm. or that you know but does Geraint sort of is he a proponent of the multiverse theory as an explanation for that fine tuning yeah that's the one he defends yeah. in the book yeah. i should say um fine tuned doesn't mean made by a creator it's a right. bit of physics jargon sure. which is why I, you, an atheist can say i think the universe is fine tuned yes because they're not, not implying design. therefore designed yeah. it's just saying, a bit of yeah. physics okay. jargon but so yeah, he comes to think that, that, that the multiverse is the best uh, explanation for it, simply because it's the only one where, I mean, you would need a coincidence anyway with, with necessity, and so there aren't too many other options left. So the big question for me, and uh, I produced a sort of video that, that did the rounds a year or so ago, where I, as a little byline talking about, I was kind of trying to explain the, the fine-tuning of the universe and why it might provide evidence for God and so on, and and I said, but there's no evidence for a multiverse. Now, that got leapt on by one or two people who said, ah, mm. you're wrong, Justin. There is evidence. There is scientific evidence for a multiverse. Okay, is there? 
Oh, man. We're in deep ground now. <laughs> uh, is there evidence for a multiverse? Uh, it would only ever be indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence. Because if you really wanted to test a multiverse, you would need to go and look at all these other universes with different properties, right? Mm. That's the way you would directly test the main thing about a multiverse, which is supposed to do the explanation. So on that level, no, we don't have any evidence of those. Because by definition, if it's a separate universe, we, we cannot access it. Well, in that if, if we could look very far in one direction, you know, put, you know mm. past the morning star onto you know morning or something, <laughs> um, and we could see another bit of the universe where the u- properties of the universe were different, we might think that okay, maybe the there are different properties elsewhere in the universe. Right. To the best of our knowledge, and despite yeah. enormous work from astronomers, mm. not happened. Okay, so. Uh, on, on under most ideas about how the multiverse is supposed to work, there's there's very little chance of us seeing even one other universe with different properties. So that kind of direct observational yeah. evidence is not going to happen. So is there indirect? Is evidence? there indirect evidence? Very good question. So there's two sorts of evidence you might hope to get. Mm. One of them is maybe some idea which explains this universe, some theory about this universe, which we could actually test mm. in this universe, would have as a natural consequence in some version of natural, that whatever thing happened back there to make the universe we see today would naturally produce lots of other universes. Right. And there are some ideas, sort of toy models about how that might work. There's what, something called it, cosmic inflation. Yeah, so I was going to say, this is the one I am most familiar, as far as you can be familiar yeah. with these concepts, but this idea that... that at the very earliest moment of our universe, the inflation period, that one sort of theory about what could have happened is that that it produced lots of other bubble universes and kind mm. of almost continued to do that in a sort of uh, extra, you know, sort of mm. endless way. Um, and therefore, we are in the universe that happened to have the right, you know, physical mm. qualities to to produce life, and all the rest, you know, the vast majority of the rest would be these sterile universes and so mm. on. So, I mean, you're sounding very sceptical about that. Well, on the one hand, like, inflation, the theory, does do some explaining. If it happened, it would explain some stuff about our universe. Okay. The problem is the the step where you say that process would naturally create a multiverse. That's a bit more speculative. That's Yeah, very much more speculative. The problem is all of the, the matter and energy we've seen in the universe will not do inflation as we need to happen. We basically need the universe to expand very quickly at the beginning. Mm. The, the stuff we know of won't do that. So we have to invent, we have to, well, propose is a better mm. thing. We have to propose that there is some form of matter which we can't see in everyday life, which would do this in the very early universe. And the problem is, because we have to kind of propose that from scratch, then to say, oh, it'll naturally produce a multiverse is very hard thing to mm. kind of, get a handle on because you, you're inventing this, you're, yeah. you're proposing this thing out of yeah. nothing. So it's very hard to say whether whether it's naturally going to produce right. a multiverse. I mean, so for you, because of your concerns over mm. the, the reality of, you know, the multiverse theory and so on, and I know there are other, mm. probably we won't have time to go into them, other reasons that you have as well for being suspicious of, of a multiverse explanation. Mm. Does that leave... God on the table as an explanation, and what do your atheist friends like Geraint make of that particular idea? So again, it's it's not standing from within Christianity. I can make sense of fine tuning, and I can look at the multiverse and say maybe, maybe not. Who knows? There's still a worry there about whether it would explain fine tuning, even if it exists. And I guess you'd also again be knocking the question back a bit further. Well, where did this thing process that produced a multiverse? originate from yeah. as well, in a sense. That's but. a really good point. So yeah. take take a quantity in our universe like the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Now, we could, we could say, all right, what if the Earth were a bit closer? Well, we'd boil. What if the Earth were a bit further away? Uh, we'd, know, freeze. we'd freeze. So that looks a bit fine-tuned. And then you say, no, 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 that's, that's not a fundamental quantity. There's all these other planets out mm. there, and somewhere something will happen that's, that, you know, some planet will get the right distance from whatever mm. sun it's at. It'll be in the habitable zone, it's called. And that planet will be just right for life, okay? What you would love to do next, and if you're thinking of fine-tuning-wise, is you go, okay, what properties does the universe need to have in order to produce lots of planets? 
And that's where we're at with fine tuning. Mm. We can say, all right, actually that you need some very precise, very specific properties of the fundamental stuff of the universe to make planets at all. And then someone says, oh, no, 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 universes, we can make those, like we made lots of planets before, yeah. we'll make lots of universes, don't worry about yeah. it. What I'd love to do now is go, all right, if I change the fundamental stuff of the multiverse, would it naturally make universes that have life in them or not? Or are we in the mm. same problem with planets? Right. The problem is we don't have a theory of the multiverse. We mm. can't do... We, you've, you've, you've kicked the problem over mm. to an area of complete ignorance. You just kicked the ball way into the dark. Yeah. And so you, that, you, you, can't, you can't answer that question. I mean, are the multiverse theorists... A bit of a leading question, really. But are, the, are they today's equivalent of the steady state theorists of who wanted to deny anything that looked like God in Big Bang cosmology and people today who are really up for the multiverse theory. Are, is, there, is there an inclination towards that because we can't let God in the physics store? Possibly. But actually, as a scientist, I have to say, I don't really care where your theories come from. Okay. The reason I don't believe steady state theory is not because it was invented to try and get around the Big Bang. It's because actually we found a way of testing it and it turned out to be false. Okay. So even even if the multiverse is just atheists trying to get away with something, <laughs> I, it's still a way the universe could be. So yeah. I'd still like to test it on its own I, I guess what I'm getting at, though, is... <sighs> If, if you're kind of committed from the outset to a naturalistic point of view, if, you, mm. if you're a physicist who is an atheist, then if, if God simply, you're not going to even consider that as an explanation, that there's anything beyond the natural reality, if you like, the, mm. then, then you're committed to finding something like an, an, a multiverse, even however speculative it might be, you might say, well, it's got to be something like that mm. because chance and necessity don't figure in, in, in the way the universe is. So I'm going to have to put my eggs in that basket. It has to be the explanation because that God design stuff is, is, is out of bounds for me. Right. I think this is probably Geraint's objection. And the, the problem, I think, from Geraint's point of view is, is that God is kind of a non-explanation to start with. Mm. I think the, the, the picture of God that he has. So, uh, you know, if, if you believe that Zeus was a, a very tall, bearded person who lived on Mount Olympus... And someone said, I think Zeus explains where the universe came from. You'd say, all right, that just creates more problems than we started mm. with. So if you have a picture of God in which God is kind of a non-explanation from the start, then dismissing that is, is much easier. And you say, all right, well, what has to be true for this to be explained? Multiverse, all right, let's just go for it. So it, it, a lot of it depends on the idea of God that you had when you, you start thinking through whether that could be a, a reasonable uh, proposition. It's, it is mind-boggling stuff. Um, and if you're listening and you're slightly lost, don't worry. Uh, you can go and listen again at the podcast because we're already out of time, I'm afraid, mm. um, Luke. And, and there was so much more I wanted to ask you about fine-tuning and, and mm. the multiverse and stuff like that. But uh, the good thing is you've written a book on it Indeed. and people can get that. If, if this stuff just – and we've only really grazed the surface of it here. If this stuff fascinates you as much as it does me – get hold of a copy of, of Luke Barnes' book, who's been my guest on the profile today. Uh, the book is A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. And what's fascinating is you've co-authored it with an atheist physicist, so it's sort of a Christian and atheist kind of having looked at the whole phenomenon, then asking what is the best explanation for it. And, mm -hmm. and I just think it's a fabulous idea. So thank you very much, Luke, for being my guest on the profile today. Thank you for having me. If you want to find out more about Luke on his website, lukebarnes.info as well. There'll be links there to the book as well. And, um, and uh, yeah, uh, if you want to find out more about Premier Christianity magazine and the profile, do go online and ask for a free sample copy of the mag. That's at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And we'll be back with another guest uh, talking about their walk of faith, life, and what they do uh, for fun as well, like Luke has this week and next week. So uh, thank you very much again, Luke, for being with me on The Profile. Thank you. I've been Justin Briley. Thanks for being with me on today's show. Coming up next, Dave Rose with Premier Playback.